is um, from Mark's Gospel, and uh, this is where John the Baptist uh, prepares the way for Jesus. And I'm reading from verses uh, 1 to 8. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Thank you. <coughs> Have you ever been to a concert and you are really excited for the band that you've paid to see and then the lights dim, the buzz of the crowds die down and there might be a countdown on the screen and um, suddenly the lights flash back on and the, student, the, stage, the stage comes to life but you're totally confused by the opening act. Um, I have only been to two or three concerts in my life uh, and at one of them, the opening act was totally unexpected. It was just not like the the band I had paid to see. And it was so surprising, the genre and the stage presence that they brought. And they seemed to go on and on. I just wanted, to get, wanted them to get off the stage so we could see the band that we'd actually paid to see. And um, the opening act obviously is not the real deal. They were good, but they were weird. Yeah, but they were just the opening act. And the whole time we were just waiting for the real deal to come along. And at first glance, it can seem that John the Baptist is a bit like this. He was the opening act for the arrival of the Messiah. He turned up in camel's hair, eating locusts and wild honey. And I'm pretty sure he looked like the wildest man you can imagine. I was going to put a picture up, but I didn't manage to get the, uh, the old uh, screen sharing working. So I'm sure he confused a lot of people, both commoners and the educated scholars back in the day. People were waiting for a Messiah, but this was nothing like the other prophets that God had sent before. But the difference between John the Baptist and the opening act of a concert is that John actually was extremely important and had some very important things to say. And I'm going to get back to this in a minute. But first, I need to back up the truck and introduce you all to the fact, if you didn't know already, that we are starting a new book study, uh, The Gospel of Mark. It's a wonderful book, uh, and it's a very important one. Some scholars say that it is the most important book that exists in the world. We will continue back in Genesis later this year, as for most of you who were with us last year, we did uh, spend about six months in Genesis. But it's important to, ba to balance our New Testament study um, and Old Testament study. So we're going to dig into this gospel uh, 
here. But before we look at the beginning passage involving John the Baptist, it's also helpful to make a few introductory comments of this book. Now, I do have one thing I need to show you. Uh, as we go through this book, um, I would encourage you to spend your devotional time or some of your devotional time reading Mark uh, so that it can begin to sink in and resonate with you. And, and as, as we go through this series, you get a, a better understanding of how this whole book fits together. And what can help with that as well is reading commentaries. Now this here is N.T. Wright's uh, commentary. It's a For Everyone series. And um, we've got them in our, on our bookshelves. Mum and Dad have got them too. And they're just really great, um, easily accessible commentaries. It doesn't have any footnotes or Greek words in it. And uh, it's kind of written for the everyday person in mind. So I would encourage you to get something like this. Um, as I say, it's N.T. Wright, Mark for Everyone. And he's got a whole series on them. Uh, or some other kind of commentary. And if you want to get the most out of the book, it's helpful to get the background context and these, this, this book has that kind of thing in it. So uh, Mark, Matthew and Luke are known as the Synoptic Gospels, uh, which uh, Mark is the earliest one written between 50 and 70 AD. Now Mark's mentor and teacher was Peter, Jesus' disciple, the one famous for many things, uh, among which denying him three times as he was being crucified, and then, of course, reinstated three times to feed the sheep. Peter was one of the founding fathers of the early church, and he was like a father figure to Mark. In, in the book of First Peter, uh, Peter refers to Mark as his son, so they had a very close um, relationship and teaching bond. And it's widely accepted amongst scholars that Peter, this close friend and eyewitness to the ministry life death and resurrection of Jesus was the one who told everything to Mark and Mark wrote it down and that is how we have this gospel of Mark and if you've noticed uh, as you've read the gospels before uh, Peter is very brash he's straight to the point he often speaks before he thinks uh, he's one of those kind of dramatic characters uh, among the 12 disciples that a lot of us um, kind of identify with and Mark's gospel reflects a lot of this personality of Peter in the way it's written there's no extra frills. Uh, he uses a lot of words like immediately and straight away. And it's fast moving and it's punchy. And Mark's text is like uh, Peter's uh, way of speaking. It gets straight to the point. And it's therefore the shortest gospel. It's only 16 chapters long. But half of it is dedicated to the passion of Christ, covering the sacrifice, death and resurrection of Jesus. And... Among other reasons, this is because Mark's writing with an audience in mind. The Roman Christians, for whom faith means suffering, uh, they were suffering at the hands of Nero. And so Mark has this audience in mind and he wants to really bring out the fact that this God who they serve, this God who we serve, identifies with them and identifies with us in our suffering. And uh, as I said before, some scholars declare Mark as the most important book in the world. And Tom Wright, in that Mark for Everybody book, says Mark's gospel was the first to be written and certainly has all the zip and punch of a quick, hasty story that's meant to grab you by the collar and make you face the truth about Jesus, about God, and about yourself. I'll say that last line again. It's meant to grab you by the collar and make you face the truth about Jesus, about God, and about yourself. And that's what we see, isn't it, when we 
go straight to this introduction of this book. Mark doesn't bother with genealogies or even the birth story of Jesus. He jumps straight into Jesus's ministry and his forerunner, John the Baptist. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you haven't already, to that uh, passage, um, because uh, as I said, I'm going to be referring to it a lot. The first few verses, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. And these interesting words, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. So John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him confessing their sins and they were baptised by him in the Jordan River. Now let's think about that for a moment. There is something really big going on here and as modern readers, we don't actually appreciate it, initially at least. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem get baptised. Scholars estimate that some 300,000 people were baptised by John, hence his name, John the Baptist. So what was it that made these people take notice of this wild guy in camel hair eating locusts and honey? Well, there's just two things that we need to notice in this passage today. And the first thing is that there is something very, very significant going on here that Mark is pointing to and that he wants us to take notice of. See, the people who we see John the Baptist turn up and preach to were Israelites. They were Hebrew people who were waiting for deliverance, waiting for this promised Messiah. They had this really long history as the people of God, which we've talked about quite a lot in the last three years and especially uh, last year when we looked at Genesis. Remember these people had Torah, which taught them of a loving God who called all things into being, and he dwelt with his people. These people, remember, they knew of the fall, they knew of Adam and Eve choosing to walk their own path away from God. They knew and remembered the lineage of the patriarchs, the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, we only got to the end of Abraham's life last year, but many of you will know, if you know the Old Testament, that God brought a large number of ancestors from Abraham's line to form the nation of Israel. And these people in Jerusalem um, that John the Baptist was preaching to to, knew this story of then the slavery in Egypt and then the most defining part of their history, the Exodus. God rescuing them from that slavery in Egypt, calling them into the wilderness and giving him his law teaching them a new way they could live as his people in a fallen world. They remembered and celebrated that Exodus story every year with a Passover meal. Uh, And they remembered that in the wilderness, God's presence was with them, first as a pillar of fire and and of smoke, and then later in the temple. They remembered with the establishment of Israel, uh, finally in the promised land, and then they had those golden years with King David and Solomon, And then as the kings of Israel lost their way and followed the gods of the other nations rather than Yahweh, ignoring the prophets and the warnings that they brought, they eventually were punished. And remember, the kingdom was divided and uh, scattered. The people were scattered as different kingdoms uh, ruled different parts. And the presence of God was no longer with them. Remember, they built the temple, rebuilt the temple after it was pulled down, but it was never the same. So for 400 years, these people had been waiting in darkness. 
They were waiting for a Messiah, a saviour, to free them, they thought, from Roman oppression and to re-establish them as a nation again of Israel. Why? Why were they waiting? They were waiting because they had these prophecies which spoke of a Messiah or a deliverer coming. They knew their Hebrew scriptures. Remember these first um, readers or hearers of, of Mark's gospel knew their Hebrew scriptures and they knew that when John the Baptist appeared calling for repentance and to get ready for him, this was not a foreign abstract or foreign idea. This was not just a wild madman, but it was he was something to take notice of because he was fulfilling those prophecies. Um, and these prophecies are from Malachi and Isaiah. The first two lines from uh, that Mark, uh, Mark chapter, verse two, chapter one, verse two, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. Now that's a direct quote from the book of Malachi. And way back in history, the book of Malachi was to warn the Israelites who were following the other gods that Yahweh was coming in judgment. They'd been warned many times, but again, they took no notice. So then uh, the people were judged and spread and conquered by other nations. So when Mark uses these same words, the initial audience would have realized in what we need to hear, judgment is coming. God is coming and judgment will come with, with that God. Jesus is coming again. Are we, the readers of Mark's gospel, ready? And then the second prophetic text that Mark recalls in verse 3 is from Isaiah 40, where God promises, it's one of the most beautiful passages of scripture, where God promises to come back to his people restoring them from darkness and bringing them into that light, comforting his people. Although we've only got a couple of lines here in Mark's gospel from Isaiah 40, this actually references the whole text, the whole of Isaiah 40. The people would have heard those two lines and then automatically remembered that whole um, passage from Isaiah 40. And Mark knew that his first century readers would have known that. And it meant here comes God, Yahweh is coming again, coming again to perform another act of exodus, ready to free the people from darkness and into light. And this is what is such great news. And we don't, as modern readers, initially appreciate that until we do a bit of digging. So these first few verses in Mark, as I said, signal something absolutely huge. We're about to read about the return of Yahweh the God of Israel, with both the hand of judgment, but also the hand of grace. And we know that that's who Jesus was, wasn't he? He offered grace to those who believed who he said he was, offering grace to those who gave their allegiance to him, but judgment to those who denied him and denied the truth of who he said he was. So this is the first indication, this use of ancient prophetic texts that told people something big was happening. And the second indication um, is the way that Mark opens, opens his very first sentence. Uh, the beginning of the good news. Now, who, asked, who remembers where the beginning is used before? In Genesis, right? The beginning of the world. Mark is using these same two words from Genesis to signal this is the beginning of a new creation. This is a whole new order of things. This is not just another prophet arriving Another warning, this is the Son of God himself and everything will be changed. And this is great news. So that's the second way. And the third way, just briefly, the way God, Mark communicates the magnitude of who Jesus is and who, what he came to do is by the words of John's message. 
After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptise you with water, but he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. So John can only baptise with water, signalling the old purification system, you know, the old, um, Old Testament covenant system. But Jesus is going to do something else. He brings the Holy Spirit, changing us and purifying us from the inside, putting the law on our hearts, doing away with the old sacrificial system, doing away with the old purification system that was given to the people back on Mount Sinai with, Mount, with Moses and the tablets of stone. Remember that story? This is huge. This is a whole new way of life. This new exodus and this whole new way of being, which we're actually going to unpack more over the coming weeks. And we'll see how this impacted the lives of those back then in the day of Jesus and how it continues to bring a whole new life to us as Christians ever since then. So that's the first thing to notice in this passage through those three things. Mark is pointing from the very beginning of this gospel that Jesus' coming is not just something ordinary. It is huge. It's a whole new era, a whole new kingdom, a whole new way of life. So that was the first thing. The second thing to notice is who John the Baptist is and what he has to say. Why is this wild man here? Why don't we get straight to the point of who Jesus is? Why bother with this crazy man who seems like such a bizarre choice as an opening act for Jesus? Well, in humility, as he does, point, he points himself out, uh, John, uh, that he was not the main act, but he did have a very important and an urgent purpose. He was to call the people to get ready. And these words from Isaiah describe what he was to do. Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Now this, as I said, uh, as, often, as is often the case, means more to the original audience than it means to us. Again, we have to do some background context. Um, so I'll just tell you what that background context is. Back at the beginning of the spring season in the ancient world, the images of all the gods that they worshipped would be wheeled out on trolleys by the kings. Remember, there were lots of gods that the people worshipped and they built these big statues um, for each god. And they lived and were kept in the temple. And these images and idols symbolised the god's power. So the bigger the idol or the bigger the image, the more powerful the god. Now they would uh, be wheeled out on trolleys and they were really a bid for the God's blessing on the coming year's crop and harvest. So they would be paraded from the temple out to the house of the festival, which was usually outside the city. But in order to do so, the people needed to clear the road because there was debris and rocks and all sorts of things on the path. So that they needed to clear these paths so that these huge things could be wheeled where they needed to go. So this language that therefore highlights John's task to prepare the way was to prepare this path, calling the people to make a way for God, for the coming Messiah. Now obviously this is not a, a call to clear a physical road, but it's an inwards heart clearing, calling the people to repentance and baptism so that they would be ready for the Lord when he comes. And the people of that day heard that call. They came in the thousands and were baptized. They repented. And because uh, they, they recognized that something huge was happening and they understood who John was. They heeded the call to prepare their hearts. The king is coming. Let's get ready. Yahweh is returning to his people. 
Now, there's a saying in Britain, wherever the Queen goes, she smells fresh paint. And if we were told the Queen was coming to visit, I'm pretty sure we would spruce up the place. We would put on our best clothes. We would clean up the streets. Um, we'd get rid of heaps of rubbish. We, we would just get repainting done wherever it needed to be repainted. And in a similar way, the people of Jerusalem knew they needed to get themselves ready because they were having a significant visitor. Get ready. So this is the point that we need to take away for us today too, to get ready. Not only is Mark intending us to notice that there is something huge and world-changing in this person of Jesus, but also we need to hear this call to get ready. We need to clear the path of our lives and to our hearts and to our souls so that he can take up residence and bring the blessing of new life and life in him to our lives. As Christians, when we acknowledge that Jesus is Lord of all, when we allow him to take the front seat and the steering wheel of our lives, we're acknowledging that things are different. We are welcoming this new kingdom. We are no longer at the centre of our worlds. God is. And we then become live, we, we then live in the way of the Spirit, no longer under the old covenant. We've been delivered from the slavery of sin and we've been brought through an exodus into new life through the death and resurrection of Jesus. His grace covering over our sins like the waters of the sea covering the Egyptians, gone forever. And like both the people of Jerusalem who heard John the Baptist's call and the early church who read Mark's gospel, we too, us at Abide Church, us Christians in New Zealand and the world, we need to hear this call to repent, to be baptised and to prepare the way in our hearts for Jesus. Now, let's be honest, many of us want to live the life that Jesus promises. We want the blessings of God. But many of us have not cleared the roads fully to our hearts. Many of us are protective of the, of the boulders and the debris. We don't want to do the hard and sometimes painful work of moving obstacles and making the path straight for him in our lives. We're quite happy to let Jesus uh, in at the front door, but he can say, stay in the front lounge sipping tea, having small talk. We don't want to allow him into the messy bedrooms and the closets of our hearts where the very depths of our insecurities and our secret skeletons lie. That way has not been cleared. So if we don't prepare this way and clear the road, allowing Jesus to come and take over every part of every room in our heart, we won't be able to live the life that Jesus promises, the life of deep joy, of true freedom from the struggles we face, the true peace that comes with the Spirit of God. Now, we're all, we're all stubborn in different places. We all want to hold on to things because it feels safe. It's scary and it's unnatural for our human fallen selves to allow God into those dark places. But when we do let him in, when we make our path clear, when we do repent and we let go, when we recognise what Jesus can and will do and we allow him to do so, we are blown away in a way that I actually can't describe, except to say that you will feel more alive than you have ever felt. The struggles of this life don't disappear, as we all know. But when we have the Spirit of God inside of us in an alive way, when we allow Jesus to baptise us with the Holy Spirit, as John the Baptist declared, we can face anything in his strength. I read this on a blog the other day by a lady who doesn't confess to be a Christian. It was very interesting. So many of us experience and get to this point of seeking, searching, yearning for something more, greater purpose, Depth, meaning, connection and fulfilment. It's like this itch we can't seem to scratch. This frantic search 
when we're not really sure what it is we're looking for. It's a persistent longing, one growing louder, making us more uncomfortable and frustrated with where we're at, yet we can't explain why. And it's so common to dismiss the yearning, distract ourselves or seek answers outside of ourselves. And really, the answers we're seeking lie. Now, at this point, she says within. So she thinks that the answers to this insatiable desire for something lie within ourselves. But I can promise you that she will be attempting to itch that scratch for the rest of her life until she realises that the only answers are found in God. So other than her conclusion, though, the way she feels resonates with so many before they find God. And even for those of us who do say we are Christian, but we haven't fully cleared the way in our hearts to him so that God can bring about that work of transformative healing and full life in him, some of us still feel this itch. Is this the way you're feeling? As Peter himself writes in 1 Peter 1, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Are we feeling this joy? This is the good news. Good news for all of us. For the lady who wrote that blog. For the neighbour of yours down the street. For that mum you bump into at school drop-off. For the guy you talk to about the latest hunting adventure. For your colleagues, your bosses, your employees. This is the good news that Mark's Gospel talks about. No longer are we slaves to our fallen self. No longer slaves to sin. No longer does death have the final say. No longer do we have this insatiable itch we can't scratch. Longing for something more. We are born again into a new life and a new kingdom. We get to experience that exodus from slavery into freedom. Every single one of us who is willing to clear the path in our hearts. Before I close in prayer, I just want to reframe the rest of the book of Mark by way of three questions. Because as we read each passage in the weeks ahead, we're going to ask how the text answers one of three questions. The first question, who is Jesus? Second question, what did he do? And the third question, what does he call us to do as his followers? In Mark's gospel, as a couple of scholars have said, every single part of Mark's gospel answers one of those three questions. And this opening eight verses actually answers all three when we take into context the full text of Isaiah 40 that Mark is referencing. Who is Jesus? He's God, come to be with his people, that long-awaited Messiah. What did he do? He came to set the captives free, bringing freedom, not from Roman oppression, which was always only going to be temporary, but freedom from sin and death, establishing that new kingdom. And what does he call us to do? Repent. Turn from our ways. Allow the Holy Spirit to renew our minds, clearing the path to our hearts and allowing him to enter, bringing that new kingdom of life and light, releasing us from sin and darkness. It's an invitation for all of us, but we do need to do that now, not put it off. Mark's gospel fills the role that John the Baptist once did, Proclaiming the good news and the call to repent with urgency because Jesus is coming again for us. And while we wait, we need to get ready, not just to get ready in case he comes next week, because let's face it, he might not come in our lifetime. In fact, he probably won't. But he also uh, might. And this is the tension we live in. We spend our lives getting ready because it takes a lifetime of walking with God to become shaped in the people he calls us to be. We need to clear the path to our hearts daily. Let's pray. 
Father God, thank you for the incredible new kingdom that your son Jesus bought so that we can have that life you have designed for us. A full life deep in the knowledge of who you are and what you've done. A love and a grace that changes everything. Please show us the week, this week the obstacles that we have in our hearts that are blocking the way to you coming and entering into our lives more fully and with more power. Would you give us the courage to face our brokenness, our shame, the things that we would rather hold on to than let you take hold of and heal us from? Give us the courage to tell others in our world of this life-changing person of Jesus Christ and the life that he offers us. Amen. Now this week and next week's sermon go very closely hand in hand. I debated doing a bit more of the chapter, but sometimes it's better just to do a smaller number of verses, otherwise we can get a bit overwhelmed and swamped. So next week we're going to look at the baptism of Jesus and look again at this call from John the Baptist and also the call from Jesus. But it's going to be a whole lot more practical, lots of practices that we can do in our lives to clear the way in our hearts and to follow the call of Jesus. Uh, Today was a bit more theoretical, so we'll see you again next week.